Good afternoon. Welcome to the Cato Institute. I'm Roger Pilon, director of Cato's Center for Constitutional Studies, which is hosting uh, the forum today. Uh, Ilya Shapiro was originally scheduled to moderate, but he uh, is elsewhere today, so I'm filling in for him. Uh, our subject is uh, liberating bone marrow donors. Um, every year, 1,000 Americans die because they can't find a matching bone marrow donor. Minorities are hit especially hard. Only 25% of the African Americans needing an unrelated donor will find one. Yet the human body regenerates bone marrow. Donors are whole again just a few weeks after donation. So why are so many lives lost for lack of more marrow? Why doesn't the market work here as it does with other renewable cells like blood, where donors are compensated for donating. The answer lies in the National Organ Transplant Act of 1984, or NOTA, which makes it a federal crime to offer compensation for potential donors. Enacted to curtail a black market in non-renewable organs, like lungs and kidneys, NOTA provides for up to five years' imprisonment for anyone involved in a compensated donation, including doctors, nurses, patients, and donors. In short, NOTA's prohibitions have created the dire shortage of marrow donors. Last October, the Institute for Justice brought suit against Attorney General Eric Holder to try to end the ban on offering compensation for bone marrow donors. Brought on behalf of adults with deadly blood diseases, the parents of sick children, a California nonprofit, and a world-renowned medical doctor who specializes in bone marrow research. The suit is now in the U.S. District Court for the Central District of California. We're fortunate to have with us today the lead attorney on that case, Jeff Rose, who will discuss both the issue itself and the legal theory of the case. We'll then have comments from two biomedical ethicists, uh, James Childress and Siegfried Fry Revere. I'll introduce each before he speaks. Jeff will then respond briefly, after which we'll take questions from our audience and then have lunch upstairs in Cato's Winter Garden. Jeff Rose is a senior attorney at the Institute for Justice. Um, his practice focuses on private property rights, free speech, and economic liberty. His background, however, is hardly that of the ordinary Washington attorney. A native of Alberta, Canada, Jeff dropped out of high school at the age of 17, moved to the mountains to teach skiing, backpacked in Asia for six months, and then attended the University of Alberta, after which he lived two years in Japan as a translator. He then came to the United States to pursue educational opportunities and fell in love with the American <coughs> principles of liberty. Jeff graduated with honors from the Harvard Law School in 2002, where he had extensively uh, in, uh, worked in law and economics. He also holds a master's degree from the University of Chicago in law and philosophy. Before joining the Institute for Justice, he clerked for Judge Will Garwood on the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Fifth Circuit and Chief Judge Pr uh, Patricia Fawcett of the U.S. District Court for the Middle District of Florida. Jeff regularly publishes opinion pieces on constitutional law. Among these are recent pieces in the, on the bone marrow case in the New York Times, 
a piece on judicial engagement in the Wall Street Journal, and an essay in the Legal Times about the state of property law in America following the U U.S. Supreme Court's disastrous 2005 ruling in Kelo, the city of New London. To discuss this issue and the law surrounding it, please welcome Jeff Rose. Thank you very much, Roger, and um, I'd like to thank Roger and Cato uh, and Ilya as well, though he can't be here for um, organizing the forum on our case. Um, as Roger said, I'm Jeff Rose. I'm a senior attorney with the Institute for Justice and the lead attorney in the Bone Marrow case. Um, the case is called Flynn v. Holder, and it's a case we filed in October uh, against the U.S. Attorney General on behalf of cancer patients and their families um, from across the United States. Um, uh, Dr. Uh, Wagner from the University of Minnesota, who is a, a world-leading bone marrow researcher, and a California nonprofit called moremarrowdonors.org. So let me just give a brief description of what the case is about. And I think we really have to start with what is a bone marrow transplant. Um, I think some of you may have a passing familiarity or a set of intuitions about what a kidney transplant might be or a heart transplant. Um, and that's a situation in which you take a solid organ, like a kidney, something you can hold in your hand, and you put it into someone else. A bone marrow transplant is a little bit different. Um, if you've ever seen, um, you know, uh, a piece of ham or something like that, you've actually, you, you've probably seen the bone marrow. It's this kind of spongy-looking thing in the middle of, of bones. Um, that's called the bone marrow. When you do a bone marrow transplant, you're not transplanting that. What you're transplanting are special cells that grow inside the hollows of the bone marrow. And for, you know, just for the ease of, of discussing these, we'll call these marrow cells. And marrow cells make blood. That's what they do. They're just immature blood cells. And these immature blood cells exist inside the bones, and some of them divide to make more immature blood cells. Some of them decide to grow up and become red blood cells or white blood cells or platelets or just the other cellular components of your blood. And once they grow up, they leave the bone marrow and they go into your bloodstream. And as everybody knows, you need blood to live. Every year, about 130,000 Americans are diagnosed with a disease of the blood or the bone marrow. Um, most of these diseases are fatal. Um, many of them are invariably fatal, and they are uh, often kill you very quickly. These are diseases like leukemia. Um, well, they, they fall into sort of two general categories. Um, one are cancers in which blood cells, you know, either um, irregular blood cells proliferate uh, and destroy the ability to make healthy blood, or anemias where your body just doesn't make enough blood to begin with. Um, for many people who get these diagnoses, the only hope is a bone marrow transplant. Getting a bone marrow transplant is, uh, the, the process of the bone marrow transplant itself is very easy, as I'll describe in a minute, but finding a donor is very hard. In the kidney context, roughly, you just need someone who's, you know, kind of a matching, a basic matching tissue type, similar blood. I mean, the chances are that there are lots of people in this room who could donate kidneys to each other. Um, you could probably donate hearts to each other. It's actually, it's, it's not that complicated doing a solid organ <laughs> transplant. Bone marrow is very different. You have to match on a deep genetic basis. The probability <laughs> that anyone in this room is a bone marrow match for anyone else is vanishingly small. The only way for donors practically uh, to 
to uh, be matched with patients is through a large national registry. And that's actually something we have in the United States. It's the National um, Marrow Donor Program Registry. Even though there are millions of people on the, on the registry, it's just not enough. Um, and so what that means is that uh, there, are, there are people every day who die in the United States because they can't find a compatible bone marrow donor. Um, minorities, as Roger said, are, are the hardest hit. If you're an African-American, you have about a 25% chance of finding a marrow donor. As I mentioned earlier, compatibility really depends on genes. And so the more mixed your genes are, the more difficult it is for you to find a donor. So people of mixed racial heritage um, or African-Americans who tend to have genes drawn from all over the world, um, they have a really hard time finding finding matches. Also, if a match comes up on the on the uh, national registry, it doesn't guarantee that somebody is can be found, that they're going to be available, or that they're willing to donate. And so there is it is reasonable to suppose that there is some set of matching donors on the Merrill registry that match um, and that would donate if there were some reasonable compensation available. And fundamentally, this case is about making it possible to determine if strategic compensation will increase the number of bone marrow donors. There are two methods of donating bone marrow. Um, the original method, uh, which is still used, but it's only used about 30% of the time, is you sedate the donor and you put a big needle in the donor's hip. And basically, it's just a big needle. You pull out some of those special cells out of the, the bones in your hip, and you put it into... Uh, you know, I mean, there's a few steps in between, but basically you put it into a bag and you stick a needle in the donor, in the recipient's arm, and those special marrow cells know to go into the bones of the patient. Uh, the more common method now is a method that wasn't around when the National Organ Transplant Act was passed. Um, actually, you just take the marrow cells out of the donor's arm in a process that's very similar to blood donation. Um, you can, you basically give the donor a little bit of medicine every day for a week, and their, their marrow cells proliferate, and they proliferate to a degree that they actually leave the bone marrow and just go into the circulating bloodstream. So it's fairly simple just to pull them out of a donor's arm, skim out the marrow cells, and put everything else back in. Um, so it's a simple process. For the patient, uh, receiving the transplant is very easy. You just put a needle in the arm, and the, and the um, marrow cells flow in. But to prepare the patient to receive the marrow cells is extremely difficult for the patient. Um, basically, you have to kill their native marrow, and you put them in a position where they can no longer produce blood on their own. And so the only reason you would ever undertake a bone marrow transplant is because you are facing essentially certain death without it. Um, even with a bone marrow transplant, about half of the patients uh, will only survive a, for about a year. Um, it, is a, it is a very difficult process for the patient, um, but it is their only hope. So how did we get here legally? Um, as Roger mentioned, the reason why we filed the case is because of something called the National Organ Transplant Act. Um, this is a law that was passed in 1984 by Congress, and there's a particular story behind the um, prohibition on compensation for organ donation, and that's all about a Virginia doctor named Barry Jacobs. In 1983, the FDA um, approved a drug called cyclosporin. It was a miracle drug, and what cyclosporin is is an immunosuppressant. It, cyclosporin makes it possible to take a kidney from one person and put it in another without the patient's own immune system attacking the kidney as a foreign object like a virus or a bacteria. And so cyclosporin made widespread organ transplantation possible. 
So Barry Jacobs realized, who was actually, he had had his license revoked um, because of a wire or, wire or mail fraud conviction. Um, so he was sort of a disgraced doctor. He, he said to himself, you know what? Everyone has two kidneys, but you only need one. And so here's a great business model. Um, I'll bring in people from the developing world and broker a kidney sale between them and rich Americans, and um, it'll be great. It's win-win. Nobody liked that idea very much. Um, there are all kinds of, you know, there are certainly all kinds of legitimate moral and ethical objections to markets in kidneys and things that even if you support kidney markets, um, things that might concern us about uh, Barry Jacobs' business model. But the point is that Congress responded to Jacobs' model and decided that they would ban compensation for organ transplants. One thing they did, uh, which is inexplicable, is that in the list of organs, they included bone marrow. Um, that doesn't make sense. And actually, we've done a lot of research, and we've looked into why it's on there, and we don't know, and nobody who is involved with law actually knows. And the reason why it doesn't make sense is that, as I said before, marrow cells are just immature blood cells. They regenerate. Um, when a person donates bone marrow, in about three or four weeks, all of those donated cells grow back. And the number of marrow cells that are typically removed during a donation is about 5%. Um, a kidney, on the other hand, uh, in order to get it, you actually have to engage in some inv invasive surgery. And when you take out someone's kidney, they don't have a kidney anymore. And Congress also didn't like the idea of just open markets in organs. So where does that leave us um, with our case? Well, th this the the rationale for the National Organ Transplant Act's prohibition on compensation for organ transplants just doesn't apply to our case. Um, unlike solid organs, marrow cells renew. Um, it doesn't require invasive surgery um, or complex medical procedures to get the marrow cells, unlike getting solid organs. And Congress also didn't want markets in organs. But the particular challenge we've brought doesn't have anything to do with markets. We're not trying to actually set up a market in bone marrow. What we're trying to do, what we basically want to do, is establish a pilot program to determine if strategic incentives would work. And we want to offer donors um, a $3,000 scholarship, a housing allowance, or if you want to be a double altruist, you can donate your bone marrow for free, and you can designate your $3,000 uh, gift to a charity of your choice. And so the question is to conduct a limited controlled study to determine whether or not incentives can be used in a way that is safe for patients, safe for donors, and likely in the long run to generate more life-saving marrow donations for patients. But, of course, that's illegal because offering any compensation, even offering a, a college student a $3,000 scholarship for making a marrow donation, can land everyone involved in prison for five years. And so that's really... Um, where our lawsuit comes from. Um, <clears throat> the, the case itself really has um, three, probably three dimensions that I'll just briefly address two and then and talk in a little bit more detail about the third. Um, the first dimension is really the, the moral or ethical dimensions. And I think that um, my fellow panelists will probably discuss these in a little more detail. Um, but really those fall under, there's, there's kind of a I mean, I don't want to be too crude uh, because these are, these are serious and, and legitimate, but one way to think about them is there's a sort of left-wing objection, and the left-wing objection is the commodification of the body. They don't like markets in parts of people's bodies. 
Um, they sort of, and it, it's, it's rooted in, I think, a general suspicion of markets, but a particular suspicion in this instance that people are, are uniquely um, vulnerable to exploitation when it is a part of their body that is the subject of the transaction. On, on the, um, you know, what we might call the more right-wing side are arguments about dignity, um, and, and these are often closely alloyed to religious intuitions about human dignity and that it diminishes human dignity for particular parts of bodies to be subject to commercial transactions. Um, and that, that markets in body parts are unique from other markets in labor or markets in, in goods. In, or in, uh, in goods. Then there are sort of the medical objections, um, and these might be you might think of these as practical medical objections. Um, one of them is that if you offer a donor compensation, the donor will lie about some relevant health consideration, and so the donor might expose the patient to some pathogen or something like that, even though frankly it takes a long time for a donor to go through. It's not like donating blood where you just walk in and do it. It is a, it is a weeks and even months long process of making sure that the donor is physically and psychologically able to donate. Um, and there's probably nothing that doctors put in the human body that is more closely examined than a bone marrow donation. Um, because if it doesn't match the patient, patient genetically, the, the effects on the patient can be catastrophic. But doctors might say, well, if you have a if you have a, an incentive of a $3,000 scholarship, you're going to conceal the fact that you went to Egypt last month and may have been exposed to the West Nile virus. And, you know, the, you might have a viral load that is too low for us to detect in our tests, but is sufficient to transmit it to the patient. That, that's not a trivial concern, but actually play out its implications. Um, the particular bone marrow donation is going to go to a specific patient. That patient is facing certain death. That's the only reason why the patient is willing to undergo a bone marrow transplant in the first place. So really, that boils down to saying, in order to protect you, the patient, from the possibility, a remote possibility of maybe HIV or West Nile infection, we are going to deny you the transplant that will save your life. And instead, in other words, in order to protect you from the possibility of this infection, we're going to let the cancer kill you in three months. That's just not rational. It doesn't make any sense. Um, the other objection is that, that doctors, well, this tends to be less a medical objection and tends to be more an academic philosopher's objection, and that's one about informed consent. Um, this one says that human beings are presumed, adults at least, adults are presumed capable of offering informed consent to a bone marrow donation or a bone marrow transplant as long as there is no compensation available. But if there is compensation the donor has essentially is presumed never to be capable of providing informed consent. Um, I just don't think there's any conception of human psychology that says you are presumed capable of consenting to this when there's no compensation, but you should never be presumed. And of course, the merely identifying ethical concerns, it doesn't follow from identifying ethical concerns that we should prohibit compensation for marrow donors. I mean, there's no question that there are ethical concerns associated with um, bone marrow is donating for compensation. But the solution is um, reasonable ethical safeguards or something like that. Okay, so let's move on to the last one, uh, which I'll, I'll address very quickly, um, which is the sort of constitutional dimension. So what, and, and this is really a question of power. Quite apart from whether 
being, uh, you know, having compensated marrow donation is a good policy idea. Is it uh, something that Congress can enact? Um, do judges have the power to invalidate it under the Constitution? And, you know, without getting into the technical details of the law, uh, the answer to that is yes. Um, the Supreme Court has always said that fundamentally the government doesn't have the power to enact laws that are arbitrary or irrational. And in this case, um, the prohibition on bone marrow donation, as a, and, you know, we don't have a hidden agenda. We're not trying to pave the way for markets in kidneys or anything like that. But the specific government interests that motivated the passage of this law, um, forbidding organ markets to protect people from making irreversible donations of solid organs, none of those government interests apply. And that the application of this statute to the specific pilot program that our clients want to pursue is, in fact, irrational. Um, and so I think without uh, – I don't want to get into too many more uh, constitutional details, so I will just um, maybe surrender to my, my co-panelists, and then um, perhaps I'll have a, a something or two to say later. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jeff, although you don't need to be reluctant to get into constitutional issues in this auditorium. Um, we're now going to hear from Professor James Childress of the University of Virginia um, in the deference to um, our need to finish this program up in a reasonable period of time. I'll only pick and choose from his bio, which is extraordinarily extensive. He is the John Allen Hollingsworth Professor of Ethics at the University of Virginia, where he directs the Institute for Practical Ethics and Public Life. Uh, among his many uh, awards, in 2004, he received the Lifetime Achievement Award from the American Society of Bioethics and Humanities. He's the author of numerous articles and books. Uh, his books in biomedical ethics include Principles of Biomedical Ethics, co-authored with Tom Beecham, now in its sixth edition and translated into several languages, uh, Priorities in Biomedical Ethics, Who Should Decide, uh, Paternalism in Healthcare, uh, Practical Reasoning in Bioethics, and on and on. Um, he has been um, actively involved in several national committees examining ethics and public policy. He was a vice chair of the National Task Force on Organ Transplantation, and he has also served on the board of directors of the National Net the United Network for Organ Sharing. Um, in 2005 and 2006, he chaired an Institute of Medicine Committee on Increasing the Rates of Organ Donation. Um, he has uh, been a, jo a Joseph P. Kennedy Senior Professor of Christian Ethics at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics at Georgetown. Uh, he's a visiting professor at the University of Chicago Divinity School and Princeton University. He received his B.A. from Guilford College, his B.D. from Yale Divinity School, and his M.A. and Ph.D. from Yale University. Please welcome Jim Childress. Thanks very much. It is a pleasure to be with you today. Uh, and uh, everyone should have a handout. Uh, I, I uh, speak very rapidly, uh, so uh, this will give you... Uh, a a sense of where I'm going, and I'll obviously not touch on everything here, uh, in part because we've already had a very clear presentation of the issues. Uh, I put a question mark after liberating bone marrow donors, uh, in part because there are issues to be faced, though uh, when I was asked to serve on this, I warned the organizers that I would be much more sympathetic to this. I would not be providing 
a, a more critical perspective uh, that they probably hoped when I, I was being asked. But also note that it's not in many ways about the donors as much as it is about the patients. Uh, and keep in mind that the focus in the suit is actually on both of those. Jeff has given a very good overview about uh, the development of NOTA, the National Organ Transplant Act. I would just note that from the period in the late 1960s when the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act was formulated and very rapidly adopted all around the U.S. and the District of Columbia, it was arguably not illegal to buy and sell organs in most jurisdictions in the United States because the Uniform Anatomical Gift Act replaced laws that had prohibited some of those, but the act itself, while a gift act, did not ban uh, the sale of organs, and indeed the writers of that document wanted to leave that up, up to the states. So there was this void, and a lot of us who testified in the hearings in 1983-84 said that Congress ought to step into that uh, and uh, enact a ban on uh, buying and selling organs for transplantation. Uh, that happened, but not for because of our arguments, but as Jeff noted, because of a particular case and uh, where a brokerage firm was being uh, proposed. Now, since that time, there have been objections, uh, and they can be roughly classified as libertarian, uh, my body, my property, I should be able to sell, uh, utilitarian, allowing uh, and encouraging a market would increase the supply of organs of transplantation, and what I might call liberal egalitarian, a uh, position that my colleague at the UVA Law School, uh, Julia Mahoney, uh, defends in part, that the person who provides the biological material is the only person who doesn't get compensated uh, in the process. Uh, and that, you know, some issues of a, a more egalitarian nature arise. But in many ways, this debate is now sterile. And one of the exciting things about the suit that has been filed is that it brings some fresh eyes to this discussion. And without challenging, as Jeff noted, the overall structure of the ban on buying and selling organs, it raises some very, very important questions about the inclusion of bone marrow and subparts thereof uh, in the ban itself. And uh, while they're the constitutional and the ethical policy questions, I will focus only on the ethical policy questions. Then there's a chart that I just ask you to, to think about. You can fill in your own uh, in trying to distinguish human biological materials, um, solid structured organs, teeth, bones. Uh, category two, uh, fluid cells, blood, bone marrow. Those are normally in the body. And add eggs there, although eggs, you might have a little more debate about placing it. Location outside the body are discharged, hair, uh, nails. Uh, and then on the fluid cell side, milk, sperm, sweat, tears. Uh, so how do we think about bone marrow in this context, and exactly how should we respond to it? Well, the next slide uh, presses the distinctions a bit more, because where we permit cells, we tend to think in terms of the procedure not being invasive and thus not uh, creating a risk. Uh, we think about the uh, biological materials as renewable or inexhaustible. Eggs are not renewable, but there are about 400,000 of those at the outset uh, as potential um, uh, eggs. And so you can think about them as virtually inexhaustible. And the vendor is not harmed by the uh, sale. Where we prohibit sales, we are thinking mainly in terms of invasive procedures that 
involve some risk. And I would just note that we have to be very cautious about um, aspiration of bone marrow because in many ways it may be more similar in terms of risk, uh, depending on the anesthesia used, uh, to a kidney uh, donation in that initial uh, phase. Uh, but when used, it's depleted and can't be replenished, and the vendor can be harmed by the sale. So that's the way in which we, I think, uh, as a matter of intuition, sort these out. And when pressed on arguments, we tend to do that as well. So when we look at this in terms of, of reasons for prohibiting the sales, is there harm to the individual in the provision of bone marrow? Uh, it's, again, if aspiration uh, of a bone marrow is used, uh, it's invasive, uh, and, uh, but it doesn't remove materials that are needed for the individual since this is replenishable. Exploitation coercion, I think while it's often raised, as Jeff noted, not a central issue here. Slippery slope, I imagine some critics of the approach that's being taken here uh, will worry about this being the thin edge of the wedge or the camel's nose under the tent or something that will uh, open the door to reconsideration of NOTA as a whole. But I think it's reasonable to focus specifically, as Jeff and colleagues have done, on the over-inclusiveness of this ban. Um, their repugnance at commodification, uh, Al Alvin Roth in a piece a couple of years ago noted that there are peculiarities in this regard. If it's wrong and repugnant to uh, sell organs for valuable consideration, uh, what about a, a kidney exchange, which now the revised National Organ Transplant Act permits? Isn't that a provision of an organ for valuable consideration. What evokes a repugnance? I predict that in this particular case, uh, there won't be a revulsion or repugnance uh, at uh, the compensation for uh, provision of bone marrow or uh, cells. But then the question that uh, is here, of course, is that question of similarities and differences, because arguments about justice uh, hinging on treating similar cases in a similar way uh, do depend in part on whether there are relevant distinctions that can be drawn. Uh, and you have in the lawsuit, and as Jeff noted today, uh, argument uh, about exactly how we should characterize bone marrow uh, and uh, subparts, uh, which leads to then the argument on both an ethical and legal ground that there's something arbitrary here that we're not treating relevant in similar cases in a similar way, and that in the process we are infringing liberty, liberty of people who might be interested in compensation, liberty of people who would be eager to get a bone marrow transplant. Now, I think that looking at this from a public policy standpoint, and ethics there rather than a constitutional standpoint, I think there are real uh, questions, though, about this as a public policy. You have, I put here what Jeff characterized uh, as the strategic financial incentives involved. Uh, and he spoke in terms of safeguards. And one of the safeguards that uh, the lawsuit seems to emphasize is that we're not talking about a buying or selling. We're talking about compensation or reward or award uh, for donation. Well, I think it's important to think about a spectrum and decide whether something really does constitute a sale or an incentive for donation. When you fill out your income tax, uh, you do recognize that there is an incentive for your charitable donations. Uh, can, you can provide incentives within a donation charity framework and still keep that framework. Is this one of those cases? 
Uh, should we be talking in terms of donor, the language that runs throughout this document, or seller or vendor? Exactly how should we characterize that transaction and the one who provides it? The other safeguards Jeff mentioned, I've noted uh, on the uh, handout and won't say any more about them. But the key question public policy, it seems to me, is uh, because I think you can address the uh, ethical concerns here. Uh, the key question is, would the removal of the ban and the proposed strategy be effective? Uh, now, often people say, well, look, we've been very successful in the areas where we have allowed uh, compensation. Look at plasma sales. Uh, the U.S. is now the OPEC of plasma because there are so many uh, countries that ban the sale. Uh, we don't sell whole blood as much now, but, but plasma obtained by the same process as um, most of the removal of the marrow sales. Uh, and if you look at Canada in 2004, uh, banning the sale of sperm and eggs, now there's a shortage in a black market. Uh, donation is not, does not suffice. So we can look at various areas and say, well, where we have permitted uh, compensation, uh, we've done a lot better job in obtaining the biological materials. Well, it's not clear that would apply here. It's not clear to apply here in part because there's a two-step process, registration and then provision of the bone marrow, uh, called in this document donation. There is a very slim chance that anyone who signs up on the bone marrow registry will ever be a donor. Is this prospect of the financial incentive being discussed here likely to be sufficient to get people to register since that prospect is such a, a fantastic a possibility uh, that it's not something that's likely to, I think, have a big bearing on rational decision-making. But now a pilot study would help us get that information, uh, and so I'm not opposed to it. Uh, I think, indeed, this is a, a very important case. It's important from the standpoint of public policy and ethics and not simply from the constitutional side. Uh, I would just note one last comment, uh, and that is I think the reason uh, bone marrow ended up getting included in the original ban was that terminology again, and that is we refer to bone marrow transplantation rather than transfusion. And had it been thought about in a different way, and you know, which you probably would now, then it might not have brought under that. But the act is directed toward transplantation. Thank you. So language matters. Um, we're now going to hear from uh, Siegfried Fry Revere, uh, who is the founder and president of the Center for Ethical Solutions. Uh, prior to starting the center, she worked right here at the Cato Institute, where she served as director of bioethics studies. Um, Siegfried has taught uh, bioethics and law at the university level, been a consultant to hospitals, hospices, and home health agencies, and practiced health and FDA law. Uh, she has uh, more than 100 articles uh, under her, have appeared in newspapers, journals, and trade publications such as the New York Times, Los Angeles Times, the Wall Street Journal, Cambridge Quarterly of Healthcare Ethics, the Journal of Clinical Ethics, Pediatric Nursing, and genetic engineering news. She's also written a book and edited another on bioethics consultation. 
She holds a Ph.D. in philosophy and a law degree, both from Georgetown University. Please welcome Sigrid Fry Revere. Hello, all. It's nice to be back at the Cato Institute. Um, I think it's a little hard to know what to say because I think the speakers really agreed with each other more than than anything. And so, excuse me if this is just a little bit disjointed because I've kind of written some notes about things that I think maybe I will just point out um, that I think might be relevant to the discussion. Um, the first thing that struck me is that egg donation was kind of like passed by very quickly. Um, eggs are not renewable, and women have died due to hyperstimulation. Um, and also women who tend to donate frequently um, go into early menopause. So, you know, this is not as renewable as people tend to put it. So we are selling non-renewable organs already, okay? So that's like one issue that I think is maybe worth <coughs> keeping in mind. Um, another issue might be that uh, Professor Childress hinted at that the more desperate the patient is, the more that patient will make an effort to get donors, okay? So what you might have if you need a registry and you need people to get on the registry, what's to keep people from advertising in developing nations to pay people to even just register? It might be a small amount, but, you know, that there would be then an incentive to register. And the second you get involved with people in developing nations, you run into the Jacobs problem. Okay, because I think even though I believe in legalizing the sale of kidneys, solid organs, which I'll get into a little bit, I think the problem of exploitation when you're talking about people for whom informed consent is difficult, okay, and I don't mean necessarily because they just because they have a financial need, but because you're talking about language differences, cultural differences, you're talking about getting them to sign up for something that they might not really understand. You know, you bring them over with a promise of money, and then you expect them to be able to give informed consent the same way that an English speaker is. We have enough trouble communicating with Americans about organ donation. Okay? We do probably the best job in the world about communicating informed consent with organ donation. But to me, the thought of doing this with people from the third world is, is kind of dangerous. Um, so that's another, another issue. Um, What, ultimately, I also think that, I'll pay a little bit devil's advocate here, um, why not pay people directly? You know, why pay them an incentive through something like uh, the registry or the, or the transplant center? Um, we talk about, also, you talk about $3,000, who set $3,000? Who's to say that that's the right amount or that's an incentive that makes sense? Uh, one, thing, one thing I know about is uh, the sale of kidneys in Iran, which is the only country where it's legal right now. And I found it interesting when I went over there and spent six weeks interviewing donors and recipients that many of them were concerned about what is called the tyranny of the gift, 
there would be families that had where there would be six kids or siblings, and they would rather sell part of the farm to give to buy a kidney than to have a relative donate. And so right now, and this is talking more about the solid organ donation, obviously, than bone marrow, but I think it's also relevant to bone marrow, um, where you often try to get a relative to donate, where they would say, I'd say, well, why? You know, why do you sell part of the farm to buy a kidney rather than have your brother do it when your brother's a match? What they say is, I have to look at him across the table every Sunday at every family event, and I have to be thankful for him for the rest of my life. What if he has a problem or his child is sick and I can't help? If I pay someone, that person has agreed to a price, and we've had a deal. And once I've paid him for his kidney, the deal is over. That person is happy. I'm happy. And so what you find in Iran, interestingly enough, they are more worried over there about the tyranny of what's called the tyranny of the gift and then, then they are about selling kidneys. Um, and, you know, I can get into some of the safeguards, which might be interesting. I don't know how di- directly applicable they are to bone marrow. But it's very interesting that over there they have – the most interesting thing is that they've really got four or five systems. Most people just write about what happens in Tehran. But they actually – selling kidneys is actually illegal in one of the Iranian states – Um, So it's a black market, and you can watch a black market working. But in other jurisdictions, it's legal, and they've got different kinds of safeguards they're working on. But the most interesting one is that they have an NGO that brokers the deals. And what they do is they have someone – they've also got more donors than they've got – than they need. I mean, the list – they have no kidney – 80 percent of people who need organs in this country around the world need kidneys. And Iran's the only place where they don't have a shortage. And they have um, more donors than they need. Okay? And the one thing they did was they did outlaw um, 20 years ago. They outlawed foreigners getting kidneys or selling kidneys in Iran because they were worried about this international tourism. Okay? But what they do that's really interesting is that a donor will come in and say, I have a problem. Okay, I'm $5,000 in debt, or I want to build an addition on my house, or I want to buy a car. And they'll send them to a social worker, and a social worker will find a recipient who can pay that amount or who, along with um, charity, can come up with a difference to solve that person's problem. And then that that money is put in escrow, and then after the donation, the person is given that money for the kidney. And what the social workers do is they try to make sure the person's problem can be solved. If it can't, they don't let them donate. They said, you need to figure out another way to deal with your problem. Okay? And the other thing is it's all legally enforceable. So since the money is in escrow, you know, there, there's no way the donor won't get his money. Um, things coming uh, – the last study I heard of coming out of Pakistan, they – interviewed 200 donors, and the most interesting thing I thought in the study was not a single donor got the money promised. Most of them function almost like indentured servants in these feudal farms, and they're told they'll get enough money to get out of that situation, and then when it comes right down to it, they aren't given the money they're promised. So if you have something that's legal like that, then you can help the donor get what they want. And... um, Of the stories there, I think it's really interesting 
how many stories you had of just real-life people, namely the donors, lives being improved. I heard over and over again, because the last question we always ask people is, what if this were illegal? And all of them would say, what? Why? I mean, it's not a bad thing to help yourself while helping others. It might be better to do it for free. You're more altruistic if you do it for free. Maybe Allah will praise you more if you do it for free. But there's nothing wrong with helping yourself while helping others. And most of these people were not just helping themselves. You know, they had families that they didn't want to starve. They had a relative they were keeping out of debtor's prison. Um, they, you know, I mean, the, the stories were just remarkable. You know, a woman whose husband um, had, he actually had a, a business uh, with computer games and things on the street, okay? But he had back problems. So every time his back flared up, they wouldn't have income at that time. <coughs> and she said it was humiliating for her to have to go to the parents or the parents-in-law to get money when there were times where he was sick for several days in a row. So what she wanted to do, they first wanted to sell his kidney, but it didn't qualify. So she sold her kidney to build an addition on the house so that they would have a border, and that would be their steady income, was from the rent. And so that way, if they, they, wouldn't, they would have an income that they could count on, and she wouldn't have to go to her relatives for money. Um, you know, once in a while, I mean, I heard one story of someone who bought a satellite dish with the money from their kidney. Okay, but that's one story I heard. Everybody else had a plan. You know, I'm an apprentice. I work for a guy that makes promotional bags and pens and pamphlets and things like that. And I'm going to sell my kidney so I can get out on my own and start my own business in the next town over. I'm a construction worker. My business is seasonal. Okay, my family starves in the winter. I can't get outside of town to other construction sites. I'm going to buy a car with that money and be a driver and be able to drive to other towns where the jobs might be. Every single person we interviewed had a plan and a way to improve their lives with the money they were getting. So, and no one was worried about commodification, by the way. I mean, they all saw this very much. I mean, it's not at all a free society, a libertarian type society over there. But everybody saw it as, wait a minute, it's, it's my body, right? Why can't I do with it what I please? And you're telling me that in other countries they don't let people help each other that way? Why not? You know, why not? Um, and, you know, the more, you know, think about all the other heroes we pay, right? We like to call organ donors heroes, but think of all the other heroes we pay. We pay firemen. We pay people to go risk their lives in Iraq and Afghanistan, Right? And it's not that much of a risk. Bone marrow transplant, nothing really, hardly. And same with kidney transplant, nothing. And you could be saving, you know, thousands of lives every year if you could just pay people. And Iran is proof that it works. I think if this pilot project doesn't work, if, it, if they win the lawsuit, it will be because they're not offering enough money or they're not creating the right kinds of incentives or they're not getting the word out because Iran is evidence that it works. I mean, they've got more donors than recipients. They get to be picky. You know, everyone said, well, it'll be the druggies that come for, come for um, 
you know, need the money and will be selling their kidneys to get drugs. The nurses watch like hawks that it's not someone who is a drug addict because when they get on the floor after their transplant, they scream bloody murder for meds because their systems are, if it's a drug addict, their system is immune or, or adjusted to the opiates and they can't give them enough morphine. So they're a pain in the butt. So they weed out those drug addicts as fast as you can you know, say. And like I said, they've got a social worker at every one of these brokerage firms that is brokering arrangements to make sure the donor is happy and the donor knows what they're up to. Um, you know, so I think when we're thinking about this, I hope, Jeff, that you win your lawsuit, and I hope there's a major slippery slope, okay? Because I want that whole commodification issue, the whole... The only thing I would say that, since we can learn from Iran, is that if we legalize it in the U.S., that maybe we prevent foreigners from taking advantage of it, at least in the beginning, um, because it's so hard to make sure they know what they're getting into. But otherwise, you know, I mean, we could be saving thousands of lives and improving the lives of the donors. That's the thing. You know, I mean, I'll just end with a very short story. I personally paid my way through college cleaning bathrooms, you know, exposing myself to the chemicals. I've got back problems now. If I could have sold eggs then, which wasn't legal at that point, or if I could have um, sold a kidney and paid for the going price for a kidney in Iran would have paid for my four years of college. And I would have saved a life. My gosh. You know, work in a coal mine, sell a kidney. Clean bathrooms, sell a kidney. I mean, you know, these are options people should be allowed to have. I'm not saying you should do it necessarily. But I think there are options that in a free society, you know, it shouldn't be big daddy government saying, you can't do this, um, you know, for lots of reasons, for lots of reasons. So that's it. Thanks. Well, great. Well, I, I would like to thank um, the other panelists for their um, interesting and insightful remarks. I just have, you know, I'll just have two or three minutes uh, to talk about some some interesting things. Um, Jim is right about the probably the reason why marrow wound up in the statute is just because we call it something that gets transplanted. I mean, it's as simple as that. There are repeated statements by various committees, including the joint conference report that went to President Reagan's desk for signature that said it's not intended for, for blood or sperm or anything like that. But at the same time, they were setting up the bone marrow registry. Bone marrow is something we transplant. That's probably how it wound up there. Um, I think I would, uh, uh, you know, the question about, uh, you know, as Sigurd raised interesting issues, $3,000 enough? Is, is this enough? You know, Jim raised the question of whether it would work, the pilot program. These are just empirical questions. Um, we, we're, you know, we think it would work. And, you know, there are reasons why we chose the particular parameters of the pilot program we did. But essentially, it's an empirical question. The real constitutional issue isn't whether this program will work ultimately or it should be tweaked. The question is, should you go to jail for five years for offering a college student a $3,000 scholarship to donate bone marrow? Um, that's the constitutional issue. And so, let, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't just sort of more briefly expand upon that um, now that the, the other panels have had an opportunity. Um, and one thing is the question about repugnance um, or commodification, these kind of moral intuitions, um, because the actual medical and um, kind of e economic objections rapidly disintegrate under scrutiny, and you realize 
that at bottom, what they are is probably rationalizations for a powerful moral intuition that we just don't want commerce in body parts. Um, and so what is the constitutional dimension of that? Well, the, the Supreme Court has said in a number of cases that an intuition of repugnance or disgust or moral disapproval that is not itself rationally connected to a public health or safety interest, but in other words, just a disgust at what people might be doing privately themselves or might be doing personally themselves is not a legitimate government interest. So to the extent that the case ultimately distills down to this idea that some people just don't like it, um, that's not a legitimate constitutional interest for the purposes of sending people to prison for trying to save other people's lives. Um, and, uh, you know, bound up in the question of whether there's a legitimate government interest or not, or whether legitimate government interests are being rationally advanced, is a very important principle that everyone should understand, and that's the principle of judicial engagement. Um, you know, there, there are legitimate concerns in the context of constitutional suits about what is the proper purview of the judge. I mean, sometimes characterized as judicial activism. Um, if things have to be done, should it be judges who are making that decision as opposed to a democratically elected legislature? Um, concerns about judicial activism are legitimate but overblown uh, generally and certainly overblown in this context. We're not asking judges um, to ratify a particular policy or to do things that the Supreme Court hasn't said judges have been able to do really since the inception of the Republic. And that is we all have a background constitutional right not to be subject to government uh, regulation or restrictions that are arbitrary or irrational, um, that do not rationally advance legitimate government interests. And all we're asking the judge to do in this case is to be engaged on those constitutional questions, and the government will be entitled to, to do deference. Um, but for the judge to be engaged, for the judge to take our constitutional interests and our constitutional rights uh, seriously, and to rule appropriately, and to understand um, even though, you know, as Sigrid says, uh, you know, she hopes that this will be a slippery slope. Um, the case itself, uh, perhaps the case will initiate some cultural change, but the case itself won't initiate a constitutional or legal change that would result in a slippery slope. Um, and that uh, when the judge understands our constitutional claims and takes them seriously in an engaged manner, um, then the courts will understand that we're entitled to prevail and that our constitutional rights in this case um, are correct and make sense. So, okay, I'd like to uh, I'd like to turn it back over to Roger. Thank you. Well, thank you, Jeff. Okay, now it's time for you to raise questions. Uh, please wait for the microphone to arrive. Uh, identify yourself and any affiliation you may have, and to whom your question is directed. Surely there must. Okay, this gentleman right up here. Yes. Yeah, I just had a question about uh, the Institute for Justice taking this case. It just, at first glance, it seems somewhat narrow relative to many of the cases and issues it works on. Um, just wondering if you could comment on that a bit. Sure. Um, so can you guys see? Okay. Uh, so the, the question was, why has the Institute for Justice taken this case? We're famous for defending property rights and economic liberty and school choice and free speech. Um, so where within IJ's four pillars does this case fall? And 
Um, it's a, it's an unusual case for IJ, but it is related to a central constitutional objective of the Institute for Justice, and that is to defend um, individual liberty, and in particular to defend it in the context of laws that are subject to what uh, the courts call rational basis review in property rights and in economic liberty, and indeed in uh, virtually every law that's you know, virtually every law that's written, um, probably 99% of the laws are subject to rational basis review. And so this is an opportunity to uh, save people's lives. Um, at the same time, advance principles of liberty that are actually directly applicable, um, constitutional liberty that are directly applicable to the other areas that IJ litigates in. Uh, I'd like to ask you about the rational basis test, which seems to be what you're, you're arguing under. It's uh, famously permissive. Uh, what case law would you say uh, would be precedent for uh, the current case? Uh, how would you uh, make the argument perhaps for what they call sometimes uh, the rational basis with teeth? And uh, how do you see how do you see going forward under that test, and what are your thoughts about that test? Sure. Um, so that's a pretty esoteric constitutional question. Um, and so what Jason means is that most laws are subject to something called rational basis review. And I remember my law professor said that what that means is when the government stands up and says why it does something, if the judge doesn't break out laughing or doesn't go insane because it's so crazy, then the government wins. And indeed, in some formulations of the rational basis test that you see, um, it seems like a code for the government always wins. Um, so Jason's question is legitimate. I mean, what is the, what is the precedent for us prevailing? And uh, it's, a too, it's too complicated to probably explain in two minutes, but um, or, or even two or three hours. But um, let me put it this way. Even though the test is sometimes articulated as something tantamount to the government always wins, that's not how the rational basis test works in practice. Um, people do, in fact, win. Um, plaintiffs do win. Um, at the Supreme Court level, for example, um, rational basis plaintiffs have won 12 times since about 1970. Actually, it might be 14 times. I, I, I don't quite remember. Um, and principles can be discerned about an approach to litigation from those instances in which people win about when courts um, examine or how courts examine laws. We're not asking for a special kind of rational basis test or a ra what's sometimes called rational basis um, with teeth. What the Supreme Court has said is that if there isn't a legitimate government interest, then the plaintiff prevails. So in this case, um, an interest that is not legitimate is just a formless moral intuition of repugnance. Um, and nor is the is a law rational if there is not at least a if there's not a logical connection between the legitimate government interest and the law that the legislature has passed. So, for example, um, one of the legitimate government interests behind the law was that they don't want people selling non-renewable body parts. There is no logical connection between that government interest and suppressing compensation completely for marrow donors. Um, and, you know, I, I don't have time to work through the arguments themselves, but there is actually a powerful argument that this is a law that is not connected to the government's, uh, you know, perhaps conceitedly, at least in certain contexts, legitimate, uh, you know, and actually I should say that because this is a law against the federal government, I'm not sure I want to concede anything, but at least what some courts may formulate as the government's legitimate interest in protecting public health and safety. 
Um, I hope that I, we can talk about this a little bit more over lunch because it's a pretty deep question but, uh, and a good one, and, it, and indeed it will be central to the success of the case. Uh, Jim, that moral repugnance point that uh, Jeff has just raised, does that tie in with your distinction between donor, vendor? Uh, how much uh, does that language play into this, this trying to bootstrap, as it were, uh, an argument uh, from, from um, ethics into one from commerce? And why is it that we have uh, to be concerned uh, that there might be something morally repugnant about commerce? Well, uh, one can make a, an argument from ethical theory about why uh, repugnance uh, gets evoked and so forth. I, all we have to do for purposes of discussing public policy here is say that it does get evoked uh, when you offer the prospect of buying and selling solid organs. So I, I don't need to make that case here. What's more important here in, in relation to this particular issue is that I don't think that would uh, extend to buying and selling bone marrow. I think that the fact that we've gone the other directions on on sperm, uh, eggs, and blood. Uh, and the major objection to buying and selling blood, and, and we moved away from that as a matter of practice, but it's still legal, and we do still, again, draw heavily on uh, uh, selling plasma, buying and selling plasma. Uh, as I, I, so I don't think that that sets a constraint on us. What I think is important about this case is that in... Uh, uh, now, I see we'd like for it to go all the way and there'll be a, a real slippery slope. I think what would make it work if it works is that it's not a slippery slope, that you can really pull out a bone marrow in the subparts and say this is different. And if you can say that, establish that it is different, then in effect what you're doing is putting uh, some kind of hold on that slope to keep it from, from going too far. And so I just don't think the repugnance is there empirically in relation to bone marrow. You're I think saying that this is the next it. step uh, given these other... Yeah, I think that when, when pointed out, and uh, you know, people have paid very little attention to it, and I think that when this case is important not only on uh, the constitutional grounds, but also for what it might do in terms of public policy. Uh, and Sigrid hopes it'll do a, a lot uh, more than I want it to do, but at least uh, it will open the question. And I think that uh, when faced very carefully, uh, the uh, 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 brief here. Uh, really does make a strong case that this should be treated differently. Uh, but but then, Jim, why limit it to three thousand dollars? Is there some moral repugnance that comes no, no, up? No, I have. I'm, I'm saying. I'm, I'm not saying Jim. Jeff. I mean Jeff. Oh, I'm sorry. Jeff. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Is there some moral repugnance that comes up when we move from three thousand dollars to let the market determine? Well, in, in this case, it's a little bit peculiar because although we want to use market-like incentives, we're not actually proposing creating a conventional market. And that's in part because the infrastructure for matching donors and patients is completely anonymous. And so when you learn that you're a match for someone, you don't learn who that person is. And there's no prospect for individualized negotiation. And in fact, it's not clear that a market could function under that context because it's not as though you'd have multiple buyers and multiple sellers. You essentially have a monopolist and a monopsonist. Um, so the, the real issue is what we want to do is incentivize donors at – uh, you know, two or three decisive stages. Um, one, possibly get more people to sign up to the registry, knowing and, and particular, particularly minorities. And then two, if you get that call, that fateful call that you have about a one in a thousand chance in any year of it coming, um, in, 
instead of saying, oh, you know, what was that all about? Oh, you mean I got to take a couple days off work and all this, so I'm washing my hair that day. Um, about a third of donors who are contacted um, either can't be found or just say no. Or they say it's inconvenient. Maybe call me in six months. And they say the guy's going to be dead in three weeks. Well, call me in six months anyway if he's still around. Um, and so what we want is for there to be an incentive at that moment in particular that's sufficient to push the potential donor over that hurdle. Um, and, you know, maybe $3,000 isn't the right amount, and that may just be a kind of empirical question. Um, but the, interestingly, the, you know, speaking of the market thing, if, if you actually did have, say, a rogue billionaire um, who said, you know, I'm – I have a very peculiar marrow type and there's nobody around. And so I'm going to offer a billion dollar bounty Um, that falls outside the scope of what we're asking the courts to do. We have a narrow as applied challenge, Um, but at least unlike in the kidney context, where if the, if the billionaire found the donor, that would only benefit the billionaire Uh, here. If the billionaire incentivized people to go out and get tested, there might be a million people who rush out and get tested, and only one of them or maybe none of them will be a viable donor for the billionaire, but will now actually have tissue typing on a, billion, or, you know, on a million more people, which could have enormous positive externalities for all of the other people who are looking for donors. Um, so even though we're, you know, for, for the reasons of our case, we're not talking about having billionaires offering billions of dollars or something like that. Um, But even those kinds of uh, improbable scenarios would result in dramatically different social outcomes than the kidney context. Well, is this scheme, including the $3,000 suggested value, part of your litigation? It is. Um, It's part of the the pilot program. And although it might be true that you know, we, we prevail on the case and the economic experts with whom we've been consulting now and who would be, who would be consulted in the future after we prevail, um, they might say, you know, after doing some focus group, I don't know what they would do. They might say, you know, maybe $3,000 isn't enough. Maybe, or they might say, uh, actually, $1,000 seems like a perfectly plausible incentive under the circumstances. It's only a couple of hours work. And so we can incentivize, you know, we can make more donations possible. Because it, it's important to remember, too, that um, the way we conceive it, the funds themselves will be coming from third-party charities. They don't come from the patient. Um, as I said before, the patient and the donor don't know each other. This isn't a situation where we're trying to put patients and donors into a negotiating posture. Um, what we have is just a third-party charity, and the third-party charity wants to make um, incentives available. And so if the, if the charity can produce more donations with a lower incentive – um, then that's what it should do. But that's essentially an empirical question, and we just don't think constitutionally it should be a crime to try to figure that out. Okay, next question. Right here. Is it working? Uh, my name is Samar Chatterjee from Safe Foundation. It seems interesting that you've filed that lawsuit, and we wish you good luck because, uh, you know, I've lived in this country from 1972 onwards, and the more I get exposed to the American legal system, uh, starting from immigration law and so on, I find that United States laws are as bad as any dictatorship is. Uh, having said that, I, I like, I would hope that you would testify in that lawsuit so that we get these kinds of ridiculous restrictions that we have on free enterprise system. On one hand, we say this country believes in free enterprise system, and then we close off all the 
uh, all the di different avenues and say, no, we don't believe in this, we don't believe in that. So uh, actually the answer becomes we don't really believe in free enterprise system. And we want to change that. And hopefully as more laws get passed, we are getting, we turning this country into more restrictive, non-free enterprise system, which we should not do. So uh, that's my comment. I, as someone who... Uh, was born in Canada and went through the immigration system both as a student and when I got married. I agree with you that that is completely irrational and I would like to see it go away. Siegfried, it sounds like that's a comment for you. Um, well, I um, I appreciate the comment. I mean, I think you know, uh, I don't I don't really know what what to say to it. I think it's right on point. Um, but perhaps though, Jim, you have served on a number of these commissions. What? Would you just say a little bit about the resistance to this, the character of the resistance to this? Sorry, about the resistance overall on the, on the, on the uh, uh, regulated markets for organs or just this particular one? Well, uh, generally and in well, as far as it pertains. Uh, uh, first of all, um, again, there are three major types of, of objections to having a ban on organs, and I, I mentioned those libertarian, utilitarian, and liberal egalitarian. Uh, the libertarian one uh, was familiar to most of the people here, familiar with the work of the Cato Institute and, and uh, uh, Institute of Justice and so forth. But when you get in the area of public policy trying to save lives, uh, the big question that's going to emerge immediately is, so would a market, a regulated market in organs actually increase the number? And there is good empirical evidence that that would be the case for living vendors. And, and I would urge us here, uh, Sigrid loves the language of donor, but if I sell her a kidney, I'm not a donor. I'm a seller. I'm a vendor. A donation language has, you give something to someone else, and there may be various kinds of incentives, but if I give her, uh, provide my kidney to her for $500 or $5,000, the amount doesn't matter. I'm a seller. Uh, and... Uh, when you go that direction, then you do have to ask if we if we open the door uh, to this for living vendors and living sellers of organs, are there things to be concerned about? And clearly, there are some. If you look in the area of cadaveric organs, uh, a market would not work. And we have Lloyd Cohen over at George Mason University Law School, who's argued for uh, an options market, which I. Uh, created uh, now uh, sell my organ for delivery after my death uh, and the reasons people don't sign donor cards now would be reasons why they would not go that direction I've sold my organ and the only thing that is stopping delivery is that I'm still alive and that's a pretty awkward position to be in uh, but on the living side yeah it would work but then as a society and this is where this would go against the more libertarian view uh, be much more communitarian in nature there are some things that we as a society so the argument would go on the, on, the, on the kinds of task forces you were talking about that we as a society don't want to go in that direction. Uh, we don't want to exploit people. We don't want to take advantage of them. We don't want to be a society, uh, and, and I, we don't use the law for RAN as a model either for the kind of society we want to be. But, uh, uh, you know, you can single out particular parts of a society, but again, I'm saying on this kind of uh, committee, I would be that this is not the direction we want to go, but it would work for living vendors. I have no doubt it would work. As, and again, you have the empirical evidence. But isn't there... Uh, go ahead, Siegfried. Well, first of all, the language is incredibly important, okay? And one of the questions is the language we use will influence how easily it is perhaps to change policy. In Iran, they call it rewarded gifting enforceable by law. 
okay? And every donor, when we asked him, why did you do this? So I could save a life and help my family. They don't say because I needed the money until you probe, okay? So there is, there is some fundamental repugnance, I think. But there is a fundamental repugnance to cleaning bathrooms and working in a battery factory, too, okay? And we get over that because we want the society to work better, okay? And whether you want to, and, you know, academic papers call it vending or selling, I agree. That's what it is. But the public uses language as a way to make themselves feel better about what they're doing. Okay? And that's very obvious in Iran. Um, they all call themselves donors. Okay? And that's pretty much the language we use. You know, is a family member who donates an organ rewarded for that? I mean, one of the altruistic arguments is that, yes, they're rewarded with love and affection and appreciation. They're rewarded in all sorts of ways. They're just not rewarded directly financially. And in Iran, they aren't either. I mean, sometimes what they get is education, job, um, job support, housing. They get all sorts of things. They don't necessarily only get money. But I think when we talk about giving parts of ourselves... Um, language does make a difference, but it doesn't mean that the act of giving and being rewarded for that giving is wrong. Two quick responses, or three. Um, first of all, I, I agree that language does matter, and that's why I think it's important to be uh, honest about the language we're using. Okay. Second, I think it's important, and, and, and thus if we want to make an argument for a market, make it for a market, but let's not call it a donation system. Uh, second, let's not confuse the nature of the transaction with the motives that people have for entering that transaction. I may have all sorts of self-interested motives in, in uh, uh, giving my wife a, uh, a present, for example. I mean, that, that's still a donation system, but my motives may be all primarily self-interested. So let's keep the nature of the transaction and recognize that you can have all sorts of motives at work in a charitable system or in a market system. And in a market system, I may be primarily uh, interested, for example, and you noted this, in helping a family member. I mean, I may really be motivated by in selling a kidney by altruism. So, so the nature of the transaction and the motivation for entering that transaction uh, need to be distinguished. Uh, so those would be my quick comments on the language part. And, and we also give our lives to our jobs, right? We use the giving language all the time in connection with selling and labor. You know, so there is, I'm not saying we shouldn't use the language of selling and vending, although vending sounds like you can do it over and over again which I think is misleading. Jim, About you, the vending machine. And the <laughs> Jim, you did mention, though, that the character of the debate that comes up in these commissions it comes down at some point to, do we want society to move in this direction? But, of course, the unstated thing is, in the direction of what? Um, allowing more preventable deaths? That's the other side of it, too. And... Um, Somehow that doesn't figure into the do we want society to move in the, I mean, is the question asked, do we want society to move in the direction of allowing more preventable deaths? No, now, I, that would be a very different question, wouldn't it? And I think you're, you're right, that, and uh, 
uh, the uh, Iowan committee I chaired, and you mentioned the uh, Organ Donation Opportunities for Action. Uh, and that committee looked very carefully at, uh, at market incentives as well as other kinds of incentives and a whole range of possibilities. I mean, this is what we were instructed to do under the under the uh, uh, contract with HRSA as a result of a congressional uh, uh, mandate. Uh, and uh, many of us on the, on the committee uh, felt that, indeed, it might be legitimate to go in the direction of financial incentives, but we thought that there were things in place that could work uh, 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 without going there and that there would be cost on that side. I think one of the things that uh, – and, and I got involved in bioethics through organ and tissue transplantation back in 1970. So, that's, that's been uh, the, what got me into this area. And I guess the thing that I've been struck by the most over time is how little we understand this area where we're talking about how we think about the body, the beliefs, values, and practices and rituals surrounding the body. And that the changes that have been proposed along the way that people were quite confident would increase the supply of organs, uh, for example, required request or routine inquiry, nothing is really done very much in that regard. And I think one of the cautionary notes for uh, uh, people thinking about the policies here is we have to be very careful in how we go about it because it may be counterproductive. And that's something to keep in mind here. But again, we have the, the strong evidence from uh, Iran. We have evidence from other cases where uh, uh, that are, might be more problematic in terms of, uh, and as you noted, where the um, um, seller may not benefit, but that would be a, that's a structural matter that ought to be addressed. So I, I think it's recognized. Uh, I think there's a sense that there are measures that we are taking that can be uh, extended that uh, getting get us closer, and if not, then, uh, yeah, some sort of financial Roger, Yeah, if I could say one more thing on the whole repugnance issue. Um, aid in dying was an issue that was repugnant to a large part of the population. That's where physician-assisted suicide, essentially, which has been legal now in Oregon um, since 19, what is it, 1984, 94, well, long. I think in 1984. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the idea there is physicians can participate in it or not, depending on their own philosophy, on their own moral perspective, on their own religious beliefs. And obviously patients who avail themselves of it don't believe that there's something wrong, that they're going to go to hell because they've availed themselves of physician-assisted suicide when they're terminally ill. So here we have, we've got America, a pluralistic society, where ultimately it comes down to whether the individual feels repugnance not whether the majority feels repugnance. We don't legislate repugnance, okay? That's something up for individuals. This gentleman right here had a question. You've been very patient. <clears throat> Johns Hopkins School of Advanced Studies. Um, question on, um, given we've talked about morality a fair bit, what, what do the major religions in the U.S., uh, major, major religious leaders have to say about the sale of bone marrow? And um, um, uh, given, given that it, it appears uh, at least Islam does not seem to have a major objection to it, given, given the, uh, the, the situation in Iran, I, I'm just wondering what the scene is in the United States and if they, if they have opined on this at all. You have the divinity degree, uh, Jim. Uh, to the best of my knowledge, there's not a lot of uh, religious opposition to buying and selling blood. And the opposition that arises in relation to 
uh, sperm and egg cells tends to be much more about the reproductive technologies than the cell as such. Uh, one, uh, so uh, the question would be, and thus this relates directly to the case, if you can think about and, and uh, view uh, bone marrow as a lot closer, uh, particularly with the use of apheresis for the uh, largest number of uh, cases of, uh, of provision of bone marrow, uh, it's awfully a lot like uh, provision of blood uh, or, uh, or the cell of plasma. And uh, wouldn't that be something that could be viewed uh, more in those terms? So I, th I think it's, uh, it, it's an open question on the bone marrow, as distinguished uh, from uh, the cell of kidneys, where I think the opposition is uh, a lot stronger. Is that fair? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. That's, I mean, that's our, that's our understanding. The, the bone marrow issue is essentially there's no religious or medical or ethical literature on it because nobody realized that it kind of falls into this sort of zone between solid organs and, and blood, or, or perhaps more accurately, that it is essentially blood and it's not a solid organ. And so, um, you know, the question is, you know, what kind of debate is that starting to stimulate? And, you know, we, we haven't had any religious objectors to the case. One last question, this gentleman up here. Did you have a question, sir? Um, question. With the bone marrow, I understand that does seem to be something of a different case, but just back to organs for a second. What, how could we possibly sanction the rich harvesting the poor for commodities that are not, I don't want to call them commodities, for aspects of self that are not regeneratable, that are limited? I mean, what kind of world are we creating if we do sanction that? Okay. I assume that's for me. Um, two things. One, it's incredibly paternalistic to say I, as a poor person, cannot decide for myself how to improve my life. That's the first thing. The second thing is what I noticed in Iran, which was very interesting. The rich have donors from other rich people. They don't want to step down and take an organ from a poor person. They get a relative to donate, believe it or not. That's where the relative donation goes on. It's the poor buying from the poor because they don't have resources. Okay, I have, there's a story that I have from, um, from a newspaper article several years ago, a young woman who wants to donate to her sister, but she's single, she has three kids, and she is a perfect match for her sister, but she cannot donate because she can't get a babysitter. She's a waitress. If she leaves her job, she won't get it back. Okay? The situation is such that if you could pay her, if her sister could pay her even just the expenses to cover her being away from work or whatever it takes to make that arrangement work, she would be able to help someone. Okay? So what you have is you have a situation where... Um, you know, the evidence doesn't bear out that it's the rich buying organs from the poor. And secondly, as I said, if, if, if that situation existed, if you have, you know, uh, somebody, the poor are also helping themselves by that. You know, the alternative um, that I would ask when I'd say people to, in Iran, so if you couldn't sell your organ, what would the situation be? I starve a year earlier... 
I can't, don't have a chance of sending my daughter to college. Uh, there's one woman whose husband refused to send her daughter to college. She sold her kidney to send her daughter to college. What difference does it make if it's a rich person who helps out? But even if it were a rich buying from the poor, it seems to me the ultimate question would be, who is any third party to say to the poor that they can't do what manifestly they want to do? Well, that's what I'm saying. It's incredibly paternalistic to say. Jim, you want to jump in on this point? What are we to say to that poor person who says, I want to sell it? Uh, first of all, uh, I'm not in the repugnance camp, and uh, I uh, uh, do not believe that markets are intrinsically bad in the area of buying and selling organs, but I think there are lots of uh, extrinsic reasons that have to do with protection of people. Uh, and uh, I think the most plausible way to go, if we were to go this direction, which I don't think we should in solid organs, uh, the most plausible way to go would, would be, in effect, uh, not to have the kind of uh, connection between the, the buyer and the seller that uh, 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 th that this arrangement would seem to uh, uh, tolerate. The most plausible arrangement would be, to, you know, again, having... Uh, money coming through. If you were to, you know, increase into solid organs, you have, uh, you know, some kind of mechanism for doing it. But I think that the, that uh, in terms of, of our uh, overall values, and not at all minimizing uh, the uh, loss of life that occurs uh, as a result of not having enough organs, that as we try to balance all those from the standpoint of public policy, uh, we really ought to put as much as we can into making. Uh, opportunities available now uh, uh, for obtaining organs uh, without uh, resorting to the market. But that's where I stand on it. And uh, yeah. Okay, well, let's uh, have lunch upstairs. But first, let's give a warm round of applause for our speakers. Thank you. Good job.